Scishow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know. I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my basement. It was my (laughs) basement of my own home that I was renting. (laughs) Downstairs of. (laughs) If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. Hello, SciShow Tangents listeners. This is Hank. As many of you know, we record Tangents a few weeks ahead of when it uploads, which is why in the episode you're about to listen to, you will not hear us talking about coronavirus or social distancing. And none of our tangents are about reorganizing my basement or series podcast recording Blanket Fort. That will come next week. In the meantime, wash your hands, stay well, and whenever possible, stay home. And whenever you're at home, listen to podcasts. On with the show. Welcome to SciShow Tangents. It's the lightly competitive knowledge showcase starring some of the genius people that make the YouTube series SciShow happen. This week, as always, I'm joined by Stefan Chen. Hi. What's your tagline, Stefan? Meal Prep Marvin. He's my favorite. I love that YouTube channel. (laughs) (laughs) Sam Schultz is also here. Hello. What's your tagline? Just trying to get through the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll make it. We got. We'll bring up the energy soon. Okay. I'll do my best. Sari Riley's also here. Woo! Energy. Big energy. I don't believe. I don't buy it. Oh. Oh. Is, how do I do it more sincere? I don't Woo. know. Energy. No. <laughs> that was way better. Yeah. Sari, what's your favorite fundamental force? Gravity is that a fundamental I like that force? One too, I feel yeah. like without that, we'd all just kind of well. That's true of all of the forces. That's true. <laughs> what do we got? Magnetism is that one? Electromagnetism, yes. Oh. Gravity. Those are the only good. Strong two. and weak. All of them. Is that yeah. it? Is that the only three? There's four. What's four. The Strong one? and weak, yeah. separate. What's the other other one though? Electromagnetism, Magnet. gravity. Strong. Strong and weak. Weak. 
Strong Week. That's just the name of it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. You have the strong force, force and the, and the weak, weak force. force. Yeah. yeah, I like gravity because I can feel it. The rest of them are, just, they just are upsetting. Well, how do you feel the strong and weak force? Will we have to shrink you really small? The only way to feel the strong and weak force is for them to change at which time you, you would die. instantly die. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Hank Green, and my tagline is Precious Pancake Purse. What? Oh. Every week here in SciShow Tangents, we get together to try to one-up, amaze, and delight each other with science facts. Uh, we're playing for glory, but we're also keeping score and awarding sandbucks from week to week, and we do everything we can to stay on topic. But if we go off on a tangent and the rest of the team deems that tangent unworthy, you can get Dr. Sam Buck for taking us on a bizarre and unnecessary journey. So tangent with care. Now, as always, we introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem this week from me. I'd like it if there were a place that I could go when I was bored that showed me the story of popsicles or anime or gourds, an intricate exhibit on the evolution of armadillos, a ceiling-mounted chandelier made entirely of pillows, the story of human creation told through the lens of acrobatics, a collection of the best things everyone found in their grandma's attic, the smallest airplane ever built, a Yoda's face stitched into a kilt, an examination of cultural guilt, an education in the kinds of silt. There are just so many great things out there I'd really like to see them. So get in the car. It's time to go. <laughs> Let's go to the museum. <laughs> oh, boy. The topic of the day is museums. A museum is a place where you put things. Uh, what's a museum, Sari? <laughs> oh, you were almost there. <laughs> Wait, of historical well, or cultural value? Yeah, I guess. Well, a place where you put things that you want. Well, not just that you want other people to see, because a lot of stuff in museums, other people don't get to see. Mm -hmm. They're just being mm -hmm. stored there. That's true. Because they're important. And some museums are not open to the public. Museums started out as just rich people's private collections, where it'd be like mm. your neighbor, Sir George or whatever, would have a <laughs> fancy cabinet full of fancy plates right. and, and weird stuff, a peacock feather, whatever they collected. Uh, they'd right. be like, only my fancy rich friends could come visit me. Can see the George Museum. And see the George Museum. Uh, yeah. But then around the 1800s, museums in Europe and America, at least, started becoming more public. Mm -hmm and became institutions that are open to the public with the goal of exhibiting things as well as preserving mm. specimens and uh, artifacts and things like that. The etymology of museum is almost definitely something about the muses. Mm. Oh, yes. Um, right. Just like the place where the muses are would be my guess. Yeah, it does, definitely comes from muse and then a temple or a shrine of the muses. Mm. And then that Eventually mm, okay. abstracted to like a place of study sure. or a school of art. Is a zoo a museum? I'd say yes. No. Why? It's a zoozium. No. Can there be living <laughs> things in a museum? Uh, I don't think so. Like, I don't think, I don't, like, when I go to an aquarium, I'm not like, I'm going to go to the fish museum. Uh, if I maybe. go to the fish museum, I expect to see dead fish. Dead fish. fish. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, that's also at the market. Mm -hmm. Right. I also the grocery expect store. to see dead fish <laughs> yeah. in the grocery store. <laughs> Do you know anything about what made the change from private museum to more public museums happen? Uh, probably people got rich enough that they were like, uh, nobody likes me enough. I need more people to see my <laughs> cool things. Okay. That and sounds then, right. <laughs> and then, they're, then they will tolerate me being a billionaire. They were too rich to have friends anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like some collections just grew a lot bigger. So mm. like the Louvre didn't open until 1793. And then starting after that, it seems like some other big 
name museums in different countries that mm. you might have heard of started opening. Mm. The Smithsonian Institution was founded in 1846, and that was just like a rich guy being like, here's a bunch of money to create these museums that are open to the public. Huh. So I think there are enough like rich philanthropist type mm. people and probably also a push to helping the public get educated in different ways outside of the educational system. I mean, like, I here, go to a place. I can't help things. but notice that 1793 is right in the middle of the French Revolution, Ooh. where I feel like maybe it wasn't just like, hey, we're going to open the doors. It was like, hey, you sure are killing a lot of rich people. <laughs> hey, we knocked the doors down. <laughs> this is ours now. Yeah. Louis the Sixth. Wait, what's 10 V1? 16th. Was imprisoned and the royal collection of the Louvre became public. So. Oh. So it's sort oh. of simultaneous Just, things. They yeah. were like, hey, thanks for being a king. You're not anymore. And cool, also all your stuff is everybody's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, yeah. you know, That's gotta have a revolution every once in a while, I guess. Mm-hmm. And now that we are all defined up, I guess, it's time for <laughs> one of our panelists, this time it's Stefan, has prepared three science facts for our education and enjoyment, but only one of those facts is real. The rest of us have to decide which one we think is the true one, and if we get it right, we get a sandbuck. If not, Stefan gets our sandbuck. Stefan, hit us with your facts. Number one, in 2010, researchers in Paris were able to do chemical analyses on a bunch of paintings in the Louvre using x-ray fluorescence, uh, and so they didn't need to extract actual samples from the paintings. And through this, they ended up finding one forged Leonardo da Vinci painting because the composition and thickness of the (gasps) facial shadow didn't match the techniques that Leonardo was using at the time. He could have just been having an off day. Nah, it's a completely different technique, Sam. (laughs) A whole different technique. Number two, we discovered the remains of what appears to be the first museum to exist, Mm. dating back to 530 BCE. Mm. It operated in the late Babylonian Empire and had labels for each artifact in three different languages. Oh, cool. Or number three, In 1954, a meteorite smashed through the roof of the Alabama Museum of Natural History (laughs) and hit a woman who was visiting the museum. She survived, and the meteor is now part of the museum's collection. Dope. Okay, so we got fact number one. In 2010, researchers in Paris were using some good science to figure out the facial shadows were wrong and it wasn't a real da Vinci. Number two, we discovered the remains of the first ever museum to exist, maybe, probably. It was Babylonium from 530 BC. Or in 1954, a meteorite went through the roof of a museum and hit a woman. Now that meteorite is part of the museum because of course it is. Can you get hit by a meteor and live through it? Yeah. I know that it has happened. Okay. I mean, like, they can be quite small. So it would just be like a bullet. Oh, well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Was she hitting the head, Stefan? In the leg. Oh, in the leg. Oh. She's fine. (laughs) Do you know if she was from Alabama? What did she say when she got hit by a meteorite? Because I feel like... She was asleep. (laughs) She was asleep in In the the museum? museum? (laughs) What? (laughs) What? She's taking a little nap. Ah, uh, okay. She I hate a... this. This like story is getting more elaborate, and I don't know if it's all true. Or I have online. seen people asleep in museums before. Yeah, so. absolutely. I've been asleep in museums yeah. before. <laughs> um, the first museum being in 500 BC seems it seems like it seems totally possible. Possible, to yeah. I could see us. Just finding a pile of organized rubble instead of like disorganized rubble, and instead of being like 
oh, this is probably a burial ground. It was like there's labels, so maybe we're going to consider it a museum-ish, right. even if it was just someone's, like, house. I love mm-hmm. labels, though, where yeah. it's like, what's this thing? Oh, they got it in my language, too. I don't know. To me, that says, like, n- people of varying backgrounds, though probably all wealthy people, came through here and and were, like, shown a good time. Right. It could also be, like, a grocery store, though. Like, what if it was, like, corn, beans, other, oh, I don't know when the agri- agricultural probably the, they just looked at what it the archae or the paleontologists look at what the sign says and it didn't mm. say corn maybe they thought it, it was said, a corn museum and they were confused <laughs> <laughs> the museum of Babylonian corns <laughs> yeah. yeah they didn't have corn in Babylon just oh, for clarity <laughs> yeah you're right <laughs> when did corn become a thing that was from the Americas oh, yeah. yeah and then we have researchers in Paris and it's weird that the Louvre came up again but almost like this this seems like it's something that kind of happened did they previously have to like take core samples of paintings when they were looking at them is that what you meant by they didn't have to take a sample of it or well they wouldn't take a core sample they would just like scrape yeah. a little okay. paint like a fleck of paint off of yeah. there mm-hmm. I watched several videos of people doing it. It looks so calming. I kind of oh, want to yeah. change that to be my career. Just like, I'm going <laughs> to chip slowly. You it looks a little bit stressful to me, the painting restoration, because they have to, like, it, they could mess up. Yeah, mm-hmm. if you screw up, you're kind of yeah, screwed. Yeah, chip it back off. If I screw up now, I'm kind of screwed. It's yeah. true. <laughs> I put a wrong fact on the internet. I, oh, I guess so. The thing you're screwing up is way older than that, though. Yeah, it's old anyway. I could just feel like that crack was there. <laughs> <laughs> I can't feel like, oh, that fact didn't exist three weeks ago. <laughs> I I think I'm going for Babylonian Museum myself. I'm going to go with Napping Woman and Meteorite. I don't know why. Wham! Just seems so bizarre. I love that yeah. Stefan's like, oh, she was asleep. Yeah, like so Fun fast. fast. <laughs> I think I'm going to go, I'll go with the first one. Is that oh, splitting it all, all splitting three Splitting it all ways? three ways. Yeah. Sam wants the Louvre. It was the Babylonian Museum. Yeah! Burn, baby. I would have known if some lady had gotten hit by a meteorite. That'd be in my head somewhere. We'll get to that in a second. (laughs) So, Enigaldi Nana was a Babylonian princess, and her father was the last king of the second Babylonian Empire, apparently. Her museum is thought to be the first museum that existed that we know of, uh, and it dates back to about 530 BCE. She had three career paths. She was a high priestess cool. and ad- the administrator for a school for priestesses mm. and also curator for this museum. Nice. Well-rounded. Uh, yeah, very well-rounded. It seems like the whole family was into archaeology and like artifacts mm. of the time, and, and so they sort of shared those interests. But in 1925, modern archaeologist Leonard Woolley discovered the ruins of the museum in the ancient city of Ur, which is in modern-day Iraq. And they were part of the larger, like, palace grounds. But it was sort of confusing because they found this building where there's, like, neatly arranged rows of artifacts that mm-hmm. are from wildly different centuries. Mm. And then the thing that sort of sealed it is, like, this is a museum, was these, like, clay cylinders that nice. had the, the all the, like, metadata for these pieces of art <laughs> written on them in three different languages. And they don't know if, like... Peasants were allowed in, right. you know, like if this was just the fancy folk. They think maybe it was used since she was like heading up this school for the priestesses. Maybe it was part of their education. Mm-hmm. But the timeline seems a little bit weird because it said that this dated back to 530, but her father was ousted by the Persian Empire in 539. So 
at the beginning mm. of that yeah. decade. But either way, by the end of that century, by 500 BCE, the entire city was abandoned. Wow. And they think there were just severe droughts in that area and like, changing climate and stuff. You know what kind of stuff they were showing? There was like a statue from 2100 BCE oh, wow. of like a previous Sumerian king, I think. Nice. And it seemed there were, like there were a lot of like stones with text on them from from like older writing forms or languages. Right. How accurately do we know those translations? Because I think it'd be really interesting I'd to love be like, to what did those. they guess yeah. that these things yeah. were? That I don't know. Okay. I can't find it either. I looked. That's basically all we know. <laughs> I love digging yeah. into like. I love that there's like a there's like a twenty five hundred year old museum where there was like a thousand year old artifact. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's one of the articles was pointing out like the artifacts in that museum from like five hundred BCE were as ancient to them as the Roman Empire is to yeah. us. Yeah. So, a meteorite lady. On November 30th, 1954, a meteorite flew through the roof of Ann Hodge's house, mm-hmm. bounced off her radio cabinet, and then yes. hit her in the leg while she was napping on the couch. And she was fine, aside from, like, a gigantic bruise on her leg and hip. <laughs> uh, there was some, like, squabbling over who owned the meteorite because she was renting that house. Mm. But It landed on my leg! <laughs> <laughs> well, it hit the cabinet. It hit the roof, yeah. and then the cabinet, and then the leg. Interesting. But eventually, the the Hodges took ownership of it. But by the time they had resolved that legal dispute, the like public interest had waned, and wow. so no one was going to like buy it from them for a million dollars. So they donated it to the Alabama Museum of Natural nice. History. <laughs> so it did end up there, uh-huh. and she was sleeping, but she wasn't yeah. currently in a museum. <laughs> no, I would not tell my landlord if a meteor flew through. Her. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, there was a hole in your it. roof. No. I'd cover it with a poster. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they wouldn't know. I'd just be like, a regular rock, just that last big storm. Oh, yeah. Man. Rock fell through. Didn't have to be a meteor. <laughs> Not a meteor, no. Oh, yeah. You know how rocks fall during <laughs> storms. No, but hailstorms? I don't know. Other people knew that a meteorite had come down because of, oh. like, the sonic booms and, like, the flash oh, wow. in the sky. Like, they could tell that mm-hmm. something was going on. Mm. And then in... 2010, researchers in Paris did the the chemical analysis thing. They used X-ray fluorescence to study seven Leonardo da Vinci paintings from the Louvre, including the Mona Lisa. But they weren't looking for forgeries or anything. They were investigating sfumato. It's a technique that is used to create softer, like, color transitions, Mm. which helps make the paintings look more realistic. And they were specifically looking at the faces and, like, the facial shadows. And they found that across these seven paintings, Leonardo had used different paint recipes for the facial shadows specifically, and that the layers were extremely thin from one to two micrometers. Mm -hmm. But that's literally all I could find out about it because the rest was behind a paywall. (laughs) (laughs) So did they find a forgery that way? No, there was nothing involving forgery. And he was using different techniques for the shadows? He used different recipes for the paints that he was using on I think across different paintings. So, okay. like, he had changed his recipe, right. but they were still very Trying thin Trying some stuff layers. out. Yeah, he was experimenting, mm-hmm. you know? I really wanted to know, like, how thick normal layers of paint are. Right, yeah. Is that a lot or a little? Yeah. I don't know. Microns. One to two micrometers. That type of painting, is that's probably pretty common. Because I think they would do tons of layers of mm-hmm. really thin paint, and that's why they look like... 
the like human skin on those kind of paintings look like you can kind mm. of like see through it or like yeah. it has kind of a depth to it. That's what they I tell think. you to hide the fact that it's real human skin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They are looking into the phantom zone and there's a oh. human yeah, suspended in there. Ooh. That's the secret that you learn in art school. <laughs> We're going to take a short break and then it'll be time for the fact off. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I said it before, and I'll say it again. It's a subscription-based world out there. Video games, art-making programs, food delivery services, these things, they all have dang subscription services to subscribe to. And I don't want to cast aspersions? Dispersions? Aspersions. One of those. But... It does seem like part of the subscription uh, business model is to get you to subscribe to something and then hope that you lose track of everything you subscribe to and just keep forking out 10 bucks a month until the sun mm-hmm. burns out. And you know yeah. what? That's actually a pretty good idea on their part, but it's not such a good idea for your wallet. Your money is like a bean. <laughs> <laughs> You want to plant it in fertile soil. You don't want people carving off pieces of your bean all the time. Yeah, that yeah. bean's not going to grow if, there, if there's, there's a constant drain on the on bean. The bean. Yeah. That <laughs> is where Rocket Money comes in. With Rocket Money, you can see all your subscriptions in one place, decide what you do and don't want, and cancel things with just a tap. Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money. And beyond I mean, beans and beyond subscription canceling <laughs> rocket money helps you build budgets, track your spending and more. There's all kinds of ways to take care of those beans. So they grow into a nice big bean plant. It has over 5 million users and ha- it helps save members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. What would you do with 720 beans? I buy more beans, <laughs> <laughs> different kind of bean, I guess. A cheaper, beans, more yeah. of a cheaper type you of bean. You buy cheaper beans with your expensive beans. <laughs> yeah, until I had an infinite amount of the cheapest bean you could possibly have. <laughs> Subscription <laughs> companies hate this one simple trick because you figured out their plot. And now you can use you- that money for beans instead. Stop wasting <laughs> money on things you don't use and start using money on things like beans. Cancel your <laughs> unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks. And we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850 Plus, their best-selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like, 
a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey <laughs> is this way where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 plus Manuka honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's manukora.com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Welcome back, everybody. Sam Buck totals. Sari and Sam are tied with zero. Hank and Stefan are tied with two. Seems like an extra rude way to say it. It's a good day. (laughs) Tied with (laughs) zero. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's time for the fact off, where Sari and Sam have a chance to redeem themselves. They've each brought a fact to present to me and Stefan, an attempt to blow our minds. And the fact that is the most mind-blowing will get our Sam Buck. Who goes first? Well... Who answers this question most correctly? The Icelandic Phallological Museum contains how many phallic specimens? Give me a guess. I will guess 1,500. I will guess 10,000. Wow. <laughs> wow. wow, so many How phallic. many phalluses are there? There are 282 from 90-something different species of animal, hmm. uh, which is not enough. <laughs> so I guess that means Sari goes first. I initially would have guessed way more as well. well um, would you have guessed 10,000? I wrong. I, oh, yeah. In the, in that the five figures. That seems easy me. Yeah, just get more. So after natural history collections and museums started being shared with a wide audience around the 1800s, there was a small hiccup. While vertebrates, like mammals and birds, have bones and skin and feathers that can be cleaned and stuffed as taxidermy to resemble living animals, Mm -hmm. not all living creatures are like that. For instance, invertebrates could only be preserved in jars of fluids, and plants would look totally different dried versus alive, and any models that people tried to make were made of, like, wax or paper mache and weren't very sturdy. And people had done a lot of 2D sketches and drawings up to this point, but Two-dimensional. Two-dimensional. <laughs> <laughs> Not 2D. <laughs> so I just heard you say 2D. Like oh, those 2D. <laughs> little 2D drawings. 2D sketches. I just can't. Okay, <laughs> okay sorry. And little two-dimensional sketches or drawings are okay, but three-dimensional mm-hmm. sculptures can tell you more information in educational context. Like, you can look at it from all angles. And that brings me to two artists from Dresden, Germany, named Leopold Blaschka and his son, Rudolf Blaschka. 
who were glassmakers by trade. Mm. And in the 1800s, that meant things like glass costume jewelry, chandeliers, glass eyes for those taxidermied animals, but Mm -hmm. also for Mm -hmm. humans who lost their eyes, Mm -hmm. and eventually glass-blown lab equipment like beakers and things like that. And Leopold went through some hard times, like the death of his wife, and to cope, he started studying plants just for fun and maybe paint them. And then he started making glass models of them. And during a boat trip to the United States, he became fascinated by jellyfish floating in the ocean because he was like, oh, they look like glass too. So his hobby evolved into commissioned scientific glass sculptures, starting with sea anemones to hundreds of models of invertebrates that were made by looking at live specimens in saltwater tanks. So things like soft corals or other squishy marine creatures that couldn't preserve well. And these were mostly displayed in natural history Mm. museums because they were more lifelike than the ones in the jars and didn't need constant maintenance. Like, you could just Mm. stick it in an aquarium model. Wipe it down with some Windex every now and then. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The most famous collection or one of the most famous collections of Leblashko's work, or the one that I think is the coolest because I've seen it, is the Glass Flowers exhibit in the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology. It has over... 4,300 models of over 780 species of plants from entire, like, blooms with their stems and flowers to really super magnified pollen grains. Mm. Um, cool. To, like, right now their special display is made by Rudolph and it's of rotting or moldy fruits. And it's, like, wild how accurate. So, like, these are the strawberries that are Are they, like, the making these now? No, this is, like... His son continued his legacy a little bit through the late 1800s. Okay. They're not making them now. But yeah, this is like a strawberry. It looks like a moldy strawberry. And you just walk around and you're like, I can't believe this isn't real. There's like withered leaves affected by different diseases and plants at different stages of their development. And I just think it's very cool how their hobby turned into something that's been preserved in museums. There's so much work uh-huh. so much detail some powerful widower energy yeah I, redirect. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do myself with myself anymore so i'm just gonna make extraordinarily detailed <laughs> flowers yeah. out of glass you probably just want to watch netflix now so yeah that's okay too mm-hmm. i love it thank you we'll put some of these that's pictures good. up at scishowtangents.org so you can see all the beautiful things that the blashka boys did a lot of sea creatures a lot of sea creatures sam Can you challenge this fact? I think so. All right. I think I can do okay. Natural History Museums and their mission to educate people about the zoology, botany, and paleontology of the world are constantly receiving specimens from all over the place, and this can occasionally include an unexpected specimen. So in the (laughs) 1970s, employees at the Helsinki Natural History Museum in Helsinki, Finland, conducted a census of the spiders living in their museum. Sometime in the 60s, staff had started noticing some weird-looking spiders that were hiding, like, in shelves and in their kitchen cupboards and stuff like that. Mm. And upon further inspection, they determined that they were Chilean recluse spiders, thought to be the most venomous of all recluse spiders. Okay, great. familiar cool. with recluse spiders. Glad that they found out by checking <laughs> yeah, the other know. way. I don't know how they, I guess they sent it to one of their scientist friends or something. Yeah, well, like, they, they do that this? at museums. Yeah. yeah. Recluse spiders are horrible. They're bony, horrible spiders that live in basements. <laughs> they have lots of bones. Yeah. They look like they're made of bones. <laughs> yeah. They pop out when you least expect that they're underneath yeah. things. I had they're, one lunge at me once. They are very aggressive generally too, but they like to kind of like hide in mm. a basement by themselves. Yeah. I just look uh, one up. I don't like them. Oh, we have tons here in Missoula too. We're probably sitting... Not this species. No, not this species, but we're probably... There's probably one in this room with us at this exact... (laughs) Because I've seen them down here. They do like basements, yeah. Yeah. And their bite 
is necrotizing, which mm-hmm. means mm. that it can like rot your skin, make your skin die. Yeah. And it can make you have to get skin grafts. Even worse than that, they can live for a long ass time without food and water. And one Chilean recluse spider in particular lived for 755 days without oh. food or water. So <gasps> they're like indestructible basically. So back in Helsinki, the spider census revealed that they had a full blown infestation. Like you could open a cabinet and find dozens of no. spiders in the cabinet. And over the decades, they're still there till this day. Uh-huh. They've persisted through heavy remodeling construction and tons of like aggressive pest control tactics like spraying down the whole place and they keep coming back no one knows where they're coming from and each female recluse spider can have 1500 babies in their lifetime so it's like an unstoppable tide right. of spiders yeah. you only need one I also have I can't help but notice that Chilean recluse spiders are probably not from Helsinki right that was my next thing <laughs> Chilean recluse spiders question mark but they're in Helsinki <laughs> How do they get to basically like the exact opposite side of the earth? Uh Nobody knows. They're in a box. Our theories, yeah, Chile. From probably in a box from Chile. There's theories that they came in a fruit crate, and there's theories that they came in a package of wood shavings that they had used for an exhibit in the '60s. -hmm. But nobody knows for sure. And at this point, there's probably not even any point to like try to figure out where they came from. Yeah, they just gotta freeze the whole place because I imagine (laughs) Chilean. Recluse spiders, like they're not like getting out of the museum and wandering around, right? Because so that's what it's got to turn off the heater. <laughs> well, so I was reading a little bit about other ways they control pests in museums. There's a lot of studies on how to stop wood la- lice or whatever mm-hmm. yeah. things that eat wood, moths, stuff like that. They know how to stop them, and it is to freeze them out. Mm-hmm. But these spiders aren't infesting the art, which is generally when the people who run art museums decide that there's an emergency. Right. So they can't, like, put the piece in a, in a freezer or something. Right. But I guess they could open all the doors oh. up and stop them. There's only been one recorded bite. They warn people coming into the museum that it's infested with spiders. <laughs> there's a sign? It's I like, hey, just so you know, these spiders are not part of the exhibit. <laughs> yeah. Do not touch don't anything touch. in here, but mostly definitely the spiders. But don't touch them. Yeah. You would think that... They would be other places, but that census in the 70s studied the block that the museum mm-hmm. was on, and they didn't find any, and I couldn't find any other sightings of them. Yeah. So maybe it is just like nice and warm somewhere in there. They've got a secret layer. They just took over the museum. Yeah, and it's built on top of old tunnels, so some people are worried <gasps> that there's like— They're going to get there's out. There's a lot of spiders in the tunnels, or they'll get out and get into other places, but— Hasn't happened yet. Ooh, so. That's a whole wow. movie waiting to happen. Maybe it's that's like a- an invasive species, but only in one building. Yeah. It's like a curse or something. Yeah. That's what sounds. Yeah, like there's a, an amulet of the spider. It's their punishment for like taking this right. artifact oh. from whatever culture it belongs in. Absolutely. Yeah. They've got venomous spiders now. That seems like the most likely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you got to throw that idol in the ocean. Yeah. All right, we have to choose between the oh. Blaschka boys and their amazing, <laughs> accurate, natural history glassware or Sam and his Helsinki Museum full of Chilean recluse spiders that are probably pouring out of an amulet. <laughs> <laughs> Three, two, one. One Sam. Sam. Oh. oh, very close. <laughs> <laughs> I, I expected that the spider story just really yeah. got to people. I just, really, I, I, well, I like that there's like a like an island enclave. You know, like they have a whole continent, like of South America, but then also mm-hmm. they're like, and here, 
Mm-hmm. This one, one creepy building. <laughs> <laughs> and that means that it's time to ask the science couch. So we've got a listener question for our couch of finally honed scientific minds. This one comes from at Clubja. Can you explain how art is cared for and or restored in museums without degrading the painting slash sculpture? I think that this is a wide-ranging question. Like, yeah. it is different for every... And, the, like, you have to develop individual techniques for like individual painting, things. Basically, I mean, yeah. for protecting things, like, you're gonna keep it away from sunlight is a big one. You put UV protective glass on. Mm-hmm. You could even say don't take flash photography of this because, like, the combined effects of 5,000 flashes a month is mm-hmm. basically like having it be in the sun for one year every 20 years, and that's too much. Because art is chemistry, right? The the paint and the pigment and the whatever's binding it to the canvas, like those are all chemical bonds mm-hmm. that are happening. And so photons hitting it add a little bit of energy to mm-hmm. those bonds. So eventually mm-hmm. they can break, and that's when the paint starts to flake or crack or fade because the... Right. The molecules shift around. The way that they analyze these paintings has a lot, it's like a lot of organic chemistry. So like Stefan said, they can use techniques like x-ray fluorescence or mass spectroscopy to figure mm-hmm. out what the pigments are made of mm-hmm. and then figure out based on the chemical composition of the painting or the discolored varnish what solvent they can use, which is basically something right. that they use to like dissolve just the top layer. Mm-hmm. Paintings are the, the classic example of restoration. So you'll like find a specific solvent for that varnish, put a little bit on and like carefully scrape it off. And then you might coat it again with something that's developed more modern in more modern times so that it like, mm-hmm. won't fade in the same way, like with more synthetic compounds inside mm-hmm. it. Sculptures, they're getting kind of creative, which is interesting, <laughs> I think, because they're, the material is so different. Uh-huh. Like um, a marble material from the, like, the surface deposits of minerals on top. So two methods that I found are laser ablation, which is similar to removing a tattoo from people's skin. So it's like you have a really high-intensity laser Uh that just, like, blasts at the correct energy level that it will blast off the dust but not break the stone Uh or is, like, absorbed by the dust and the grime but not the stone underneath. And so when you watch people do this, I watched a video of this too. And they're just like shooting a laser beam at a sculpture. It's like magic because where they shoot the laser, there's no more dust and they have huh. a vacuum that mm. just sucks it up. Huh. This is how we're going to do my house in the future, yeah, right? Does that, that work on my toilet? Yeah, I don't know. Probably. Just like, <laughs> so anyway, the other way to clean sculptures or frescoes, which are like the paintings on stone, are breeding specific strains of bacteria. What? Which huh? I think is really interesting. The, the one that I read about is called Pseudomonas stutzeri. It's commonly found in soil and water, and they can basically train it to grow on certain, like, glue-like substances uh-huh. in the agar gel and, like, feed off of the things that they want to remove from huh. the frescoes wow. to clean them. And That's then they spray cool. it on the fresco. And I want then, that for that me. That would work on your toilet also, I well, think. I was yeah. thinking from my own body. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Basically like those little fish that eat the dead yeah. skin. Yeah. yeah. Right. After about an hour and a half in oh. this one case, they just rinsed the surface with water and dried it killing the bacteria uh, yeah. so they're like they're done thanks a lot they their task they die i like reading about old timey when they were doing 
when they were restoring like Roman statues they found and they didn't have arms and heads and they were just like, I think his arm was probably doing this. And they I'd love to like glue a statue back together. That would be great. That'd be fun. Mm. Well, if you want to ask the science couch your questions, you could do that at SciShow Tangents, where we tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week. Thank you to at Meljma, at H.L. Toller, and everybody else who tweeted us your questions this week. Final Sandbox scores. It's not very fair, but Sari has zero, mm-hmm. despite doing the majority of the work. <laughs> and the rest of us are tied with two. <laughs> well, now I feel bad about it. <laughs> <laughs> if you like this show and you want to help us out, it's easy to do that. First, leave us a review wherever you listen. That's helpful, and it helps us know what you like about the show. Second, you can tweet out your favorite moment from this episode, and finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell people about us. And if you want to listen to SciShow Tangents ad-free, you can do that on Luminary. Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. I've been Steph Jin. And I've been Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is a co-production of Complexly and the wonderful team at WNYC Studios. It's created by all of us and produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister and Sam Schultz, who also edits a lot of these episodes along with Haruka Matsushima. Our editorial assistant is Deboki Chakravarti. Our sound design is by Joseph Tuna Medish. And we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. There is a fossil specimen in the Royal Tyrell Museum of Paleontology in Alberta, Canada, uh-huh. called Ramphorhynchus, which is a pterosaur. It's a fairly complete fossil, which is cool in and of itself. But upon closer inspection, researchers found a little lumpy bit near where they think is its cloaca that is probably a coprolite, which is oh. fossilized poop. The poop has little spines in it that might be from a small oh. starfish or sponge or a fish. And if this poop is real, it'll be the first pterosaur coprolite we've found. Oh. Wow. It did a little poop as it was dying? Yeah. Where <laughs> oh. it just got stuck on its was, butt. Yeah. The poop fossilized first, and then it died from that. <laughs> Dragged yeah. down yeah. by butt first. <laughs> it not fly anymore.